0: welcome to this week's episode of bike talk with dave i'm your host dave mabel and i'm thrilled to have you join us i'm recording today's intro and outro on the bike again mostly because it's so gorgeous out mid 60s sunny dry perfect fall weather and the next three days we're anticipating three inches of rain so It's a day to get out and enjoy the trails. Been doing a little paved trail, a little road, a little single track. Not all that unlike the Core 4, where no surface is left untouched. Check it out. Who's ready for some Core 4 news? After a huge spike in riders and a super thank you to everyone for coming out this year, these guys jumped right back into the fire. It's no surface untouched again for 2024 because Core 424 has a sweet sound to it, no doubt. New routes, new distances, and a new you. That's right, y'all, they are mixing it up with more surprises and delights. New for 24 is the Core 40 distance. Just a bump up from the 20 mile and still has all the farmscapes and B roads and champagne gravel you'd expect from the folks at Core 4, just without the single track. They're telling us 60 is the new 50 miles that is. It's a no-surfaced untouched podium eligible route with all the cats in addition to their marquee 100 mile event. It's the perfect blend of competition and community. We want Core 4 to be on your event calendar for 2024. Jump on Bike Reg today, snag your spot before this event reaches its cap. Come ride the wave and get more bodies on bikes. It's blazing hot action every year and they'll keep the fire stoked all winter long with the 20, 40, 60 or 100 mile route, Core 424 has something for everyone. It's time for the next time, let's go. Today's guest is another world tour veteran. Done the all three grand tours at Giro d'Italia, Tour de France, Vuelta a Espana which was just won by fellow American Sepp Koos, which is super cool. Peter Stetna has been around a hot minute and found himself on the World Tour level of cycling, racing in the biggest races around the world. He gave all that up to go live in a van and. Drive around the country doing gravel races. Put his own program together and was kind of the pioneer of the privateer programs. We're thrilled to have him on and I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Peter Stetna. Peter Stetna, what a treat to have you on. Are you old enough to say legend? Can I call you a legend or no? Uh,
1: I I would be honored, but I don't think I deserve that one. Yet. <laughs> I'll take it. Fair enough. If fair you enough. bestow it, I will take ten it. Ten more years. We'll
0: wait <laughs> ten more years. <laughs> yeah. How you doing, man? Good. Well.
1: Now I'm doing really good.
0: <laughs> Attaboy. Uh, cheers. Cheers. I cracked. I cracked open a. Iowa State legend beer huh. brewed by peace tree Brewing in Knoxville Iowa interesting and I cracked that one open because Iowa State won this weekend hmm. and uh, I don't know a dollar or twelve cents or three dollars whatever goes to the it goes to the it's not their Nil but it is the Jack Trice Foundation that supports black students at Iowa State. So oh, I think that's pretty cool and it's good beer. That's and awesome. I'm celebrating a victory by Iowa State. That's awesome.
1: Uh what? the only it, Iowa beer that I have had, it doesn't really make its way to California, is there is a super famous brewery and they have the the King Sioux and the Pseudo Sioux. Um,
0: that makes it all the way to California.
1: Occasionally, you'll find it in a tap room, and if you do, you know to grab it. It's kind of legendary status. And when I actually was at uh, Schwamigan two weeks ago, like we found it in a liquor shop there. So I was drinking a pseudo-sue post-race. Um, That's phenomenal beer. I
0: appreciate hearing that. We we de- <laughs> It's from Toppling Goliath yes. is the brewery.
1: It, they have like some collaboration and, with a uh, museum or something, right? Or something weird. Like they brew with a museum or something or out of it, or
0: I don't yeah. know. I wouldn't be surprised they brew that's a big brewery in Iowa. Mm. Uh, I don't know if we consider them local anymore mm-hmm. or craft, if you know what I yeah. mean, if you're finding it in California, but mm-hmm. it's definitely good beer. Did the single speed u s a last a year ago, August, and it was in Decora, which is where toppling Goliath is-, mm-hmm. oh my gosh. You know the Yeti cooler that is like the size of a coffin. Yep. It was full of king <laughs> soup. Oh God.
1: Well, that's yeah. yeah. Like you were saying before the recording, <laughs> that's uh, that's one way to to start a night and finish it. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: yes. Um, well, a lot of a lot of people did about four hundred yards of that race. And then just stopped and never left the side of that cooler. It was crazy day. It was a crazy, day. Was a crazy yeah. day. Well, what are you drinking?
1: I have just tried it now. First sip. It's called uh, Ardent Flame by Ghost Town Brewing out of Oakland, California, East Bay. Uh, this is a barrel-aged smoked Kolsch. Yeah. Um, Ghost Town is one of my favorite breweries right now. They have this weird uh, like necrology theme. Everything is like tombstone and death and rotting corpses and stuff. But um, everything they touch is some of the best. Especially, they're, they're mostly IPA heavy and their IPAs are insane. However, I saw this one sitting there. It's 5% and they barrel-aged smoky flavor of a lighter Kolsch. So, and I'm not surprised. It's done really well. So, yeah. And... Mm. yeah it's smoky in a pleasant way though so
0: in a pleasant way yeah
1: yeah it's just kind of like that that it's that lighter kolsch flavor but there's definitely like a little bit more like interest interest behind it
0: i'm glad to hear it's good i've had some smoky smoky beers hmm. that were not good mm. they kind of turned me off when i hear the <laughs> word smoky oh interesting! but uh i'm glad to hear that's good so cheers mate cheers
1: yeah if you good uh, to, uh good to see you. you find your way out to california ghost town out of oakland is uh can't go wrong with those guys i turned ted king on to a look for it uh last winter so
0: oh nice all right dude let's uh let's talk about it. i want to introduce you a little bit and one of the reasons I'm excited to have you on is the Gravel National Championships were just held, mm-hmm. the IMBA, or not IMBA, my bad, uh, UCI World Gravel Championships are going to be in a week and mm-hmm. a half or two weeks. Yep. Uh, Gravel's made an evolution into this, I don't know, world of recognition, if you will. And dude, you like, I, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I don't want to die. Like, this isn't all about you and your history as a bike racer, but you, you walked away from a world tour life to race gravel. <laughs> and I find that super intriguing. And, uh, and gravel is in this huge state of evolution and growth. And I just want to get your perspective on that. But yeah. before we do, I want to talk a little bit about you and where you came from and what got you on a bike and then leaving the world tour for Unbound, <laughs> et cetera. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, when when did you really start riding a bike and who influenced you?
1: Um, you know, I grew up in... a. In boulder colorado uh born and raised and cycling is it's kind of mainstream there you know it's, it's one of the places where it's really easy to find a bike and my dad was a pro my uncle was a pro and especially out where you are in the the midwest there the stettin name kind of has has a bit more weight behind it however they never uh sorry i have an echo now too i don't know why that's going on but I'll push through it. <laughs> sorry, my apologies. Um,
0: it's annoying, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
1: it's all good, though. Um, so I never knew that they would... Or sorry, they, they never pushed me to cycling. It's not like it was like a guarantee. A lot of people think like, oh, pizza, Stetna. Of course, he ended up being a bike racer. Uh, couldn't be farther from the truth. I was just doing every sport possible uh, growing up, soccer, running, especially. And... um I was mountain biking on for fun. I uh, was going to
0: these in
1: Boulder. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I, I lived in Boulder in the summer of '87, okay. which I want to talk to you a little bit about. That was the year I was born. It's kind of funny. Born in 87. I, it was the year you were born, <laughs> Boulder, Colorado. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was still there in August, mm. actually. So, yeah, I was celebrating your birth. <laughs> but not mountain biking like mountain biking was so new. It was not welcome Mm. in Boulder, Colorado.
1: I don't think it still is welcome, (laughs) but really yeah, Boulder. There's a lot of old Boulder money and, and almost mafia, so to speak. And people just hikers that are protecting the trails and standing on this pedestal of, you know, not making an impact on nature, but really just hating on any other users. Um, There's a lot of other places in Colorado to to ride a mountain bike, but uh, cycling is very healthy in Boulder. And there are a few decent trails, but very few and far between. Um, But growing up there, you know, it's little short track races at the research parks. um, Growing up as a kid, you know, weeknight races. And then you have all summer long the mountain bike circuit, the old Norba races in, you know, Keystone and Vail. And Winter Park had its own series. So... That was kind of where I fell into it. It was mountain biking, kind of like Nike these days with with the high schoolers. It's it's more play than just you know road cycling, which is exercise. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I started to race for fun, just dabbling in it because I had a, a soccer teammate that was uh, really into mountain biking. So we just started bringing our bikes to soccer tournaments and going on mountain bike rides in different places afterwards. And uh, he was on the YMCA team for a a junior YMCA team for the 24 hours of Moab at the time. And I thought that was super cool. So I uh, joined on as well. Um, So yeah, and then I started doing some races and once I kind of got the bug and I was ultra competitive, just that's my nature. Um, Then I had kind of the family backbone to lean on. You know, my uncle working for Shimano at the time, uh, there's always used parts. Shimano kind of has this like secret like, return bin that's like you know people didn't like it because it came with a scratch even though it works just fine or something so um i was a- always able to get some shimano parts on the cheap um and then my dad you know just knowing training and and riding and all that so
0: yeah i started racing like just as your uncle and dad were kind of phasing out mm. but i mean they were legends man they were <laughs> uh but i say they Wayne and Dale, but I knew they had a couple other brothers that rode and raced. Mm. Uh, Wayne and Dale are the two I knew, your dad being Dale. Yep. But freaking national champions, and I think it was Red Zinger then, but the people remember the Coors Classic. Oh, yeah. I think, didn't they each win twice?
1: My dad won two or three times. He holds the record for wins uh, along with... I think Davis. I'm not sure. Um, but he's one of the few people that have multiple titles to his name. Uh, my dad was more of the flyweight climber. I'm very much built like him. Uh, my uncle was more of like a one-day racer, like really good in a, a you know reduced bunch sprint, kind of like national championship races, like one-day classics type of thing. So they kind of were able to play off of each other each way. I don't think my uncle... Won a Coors Classic, but he had way more national titles and one day titles than my dad. So, Uh, yeah, but they were definitely kind of like that dynamic duo brother in the 70s and early 80s
0: for sure. I mean, I, I, they were idols of mine uh, as I kind of entered in that world and became a, you know, Mm. young super fan, (laughs) uh, which is I just think super cool. Um, Do you know if they? would have raced the Morrigal, remember the oh, morgul yeah. bismarck that was a stage in the coors classic yeah. but there was a one-day race uh i just about said out here in boulder <laughs> as if i'm there um in boulder and oh man i wonder if they were there the year i was there 87 would would they have still been racing at all
1: my dad wasn't racing by then um wayne was i think uh I know they've raced the Morgul, though, at least during the Coors Classic, um, or the Zinger, and it's funny, I think they're, I know my uncle's an extra, uh, I think my dad might be as well, uh, in the American Flyers movie when they're racing on the Morgul, <laughs> they're actually just kind of like sure. bodies in, in the Kevin Costner show, but, <laughs> um, But yeah, no, the Morgul is a legendary circuit in Boulder. And and I actually even got a, they had a small stage race in Boulder when I was a junior that I got to do a time trial on the Morgul as well. So definitely hallowed roads out there.
0: Yeah, definitely hallowed roads. It's changed a lot since the 80s, Mm. a lot more built up. You felt like you're out in the middle of nowhere when you'd go do a couple laps of the Morgul. Oh, it's all suburbia
1: now out there. So it's not as good of a road loop as it used to be, but
0: yeah that wall that was something to climb mm-hmm. huh it was like this you had a false flat climbing up to it and then it just gets steeper and steeper and steeper and yep. finish line's way up there
1: yeah exactly that was relentless that was a really brutal one the wall
0: yep um do you do you have any memories of i don't know old bike days I mean, obviously you were born in 87 and dad was done racing full time then. But, uh, yeah. did you keep in touch with people? Did you know any of the old, I mean, a lot of guys were Boulder area. Yeah. As you were growing up.
1: Um, you know, growing up, you, we didn't cu- seem like a cycling family. Like my dad never flaunted it. Like I think all his leaders, jerseys and trophies were in the attic in a duffel bag. Um, my uncle was the one that stayed in the industry more and like lived and breathed cycling. Lives and breathes currently. Um, but, uh, you know, we just, you know, the tour was always on every summer and stuff and kind of being the part of the that OG Boulder cycling scene that kind of made Boulder the place. Um, there was like a, a group and a community of kind of that old guard, you know, Mike Eisner, the, the race organizer, Davis Finney, my dad, Scott Berryman is a, Tr- accomplished track sprinter and all these guys, like they all kept in touch. Todd who was doing, you know, announcing for a while. So these were all kind of regular passers during my childhood of just like my dad was going for a ride with these guys on a Saturday or, you know, we'd go over to someone's house for a dinner, you know, and um, so, yeah, I mean, they were part of growing up.
0: Um, they're part of the foundation. exactly That leads you to where you are today. <laughs> which is which is pretty cool, you know, if we look back at u s cycling and we talk about the in the seventies like nobody went nobody considered even the possibility of going to the tour de France, yeah, and then I want to say it was George Mount was the first to break that barrier, and uh john howard make it made his way over to europe, and I mean those guys were really. Lay in the framework for u s cycling to break into European racing, and then I don't know, Eddie B shows up in the u s and mm-hmm. starts uh, training Finney and Gogolski and a little kid named greg lamond and and that whole era that really broke into European cycling and i i ra- i started racing in the eighties and it it was crits a couple of road races and if we could find a stage race then it was lucky us and I'm talking locally mm-hmm. uh the um tour of the dairyland <laughs> was was around then but uh which isn't really a stage race, but it was a multi day thing um but that was it like their mountain biking was just invented. So mountain bike racing was uh, few and far between uh, cyclocross is like, what's that? Uh, yeah. Gravel like we avoided gravel like the plague. <laughs> so it was road racing. Yep. Uh, is that is that how you ended up? Because that's all there was uh, in the world of road racing or yeah. was that? As an American cyclist who's talented, is that just where the aim is?
1: You know, I was definitely a product of the the Lance Armstrong era. You know, that's I was a junior when he was on his tour run. Um, you know, the epic battles of, you know, Ulrich versus Armstrong and all that. Like, that was, everyone wanted to be a GC rider, and, and so that's naturally where... I think you transitioned growing up in the 90s and the early aughts was, you know, the, the competition, the prestige, the, the career potential was not in mountain bike anymore. Mountain biking, it kind of busted stateside and, you know, there was this golden era in road and it was really easy to just kind of fall into the cycle. You do, I remember doing a road race as a, or a crit as a 17-year-old or a 16-year-old and, you know, I won a 100 bucks, in the cat threes or something, you know? And I was like, you know, there's that light bulb of like, I can make money doing this. Like a hundred bucks is a lot when you're 16 years old, you know? (laughs) I mean, it's still a a good pay. And, um, so, so it was just kind of, if you, if you were really competitive and talented, the, the, the pipeline was into the road. Um, you know, and I will back up a second. You were just asking about stories and the mountain bike thing brought it up. I think there's, for, for as little like nostalgia on cycling that my dad held, <clears throat> I have two vivid memories of uh, him being a little upset with us just being bratty kids. And one was as mountain biking started, he was one of the early adopters. He did some of the first mountain bike races and he had this old red first generation Richie hardtail, like what they were first racing mountain bikes on And that kind of stayed in our garage for years. I rode it to high school every day uh, when it wasn't snowing. Went to my younger sister, and she got it stolen. She, like, didn't lock it up or something. Because it was just, like, her, like, school beater bike. And then once it actually got stolen, he was like, Kate, you realize what this was, don't you? Like, goddamn it, you know? He never told (laughs) us, like, during, like, be careful with this thing. So now there's, like, some hippie bike thief in Boulder with like a piece of cycling history that he's riding around on. He's probably rattle canned it. Um, and the other was as I was, you know, 16 and just doing like the weeknight races, you know, there's always like the Tuesday night crits or whatever on, I went, I rifled through his, I didn't have a Jersey. I wasn't on a team yet. You're just a junior racer. So I rifled through his bag of jerseys. And one of the few that fit me was this golden leaders Jersey from the Zinger. Um, I think it was the Zinger, but it was a Golden Leaders jersey, and he was so small and, like, so in shape during that time, it was like, you know, he had to fit into, like, an extra small jersey or something. So it fit me as a kid. Um, and I crashed that thing so hard, and I shredded it to pieces in a crit. <laughs> and I think there was a tear shed there.
0: <laughs> Those are two Like, I'm glad you're okay, but tears. Like,
1: that one meant something. You just ruined that great jersey.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's awesome. How is your dad? Can I ask? He was in a accident 10 years ago, and yeah. uh, I saw he had gotten back on a bike after that, but it was a pretty freaking serious accident. And, uh, you know, yeah. I know the cycling world was concerned about him for sure.
1: Uh, unfortunately, that's not a story with a happy ending. He's alive since he tried to get back on the bike early days. He's had some mental backslides. You know, he's, for those who don't know, he was in a car bike incident on his bike and um, he has a traumatic brain injury, a pretty severe one. He's pretty handicapped um, and he's mentally degraded. So he needs uh, permanent help. Um, and he's pretty difficult to to get along with. Um, you know, we still have somewhat of a relationship, but it's really, uh when the time is right and and needed um uh, depending on on the day with him so you know the brain it's not like a body that just a broken bone heals linearly you know it just heals and fuses and gets better and the brain there's ups and downs and then eventually there's a plateau and uh his plateau came pretty early so uh we've kind of hit the point a decade on where i don't think it's possible for him to to gain much more um, unless there's some new crazy science that comes out. But part of his injury is that he will refuse any medication or external help. So um, we're kind of at an impasse, oh, well. unfortunately.
0: Hmm. So Well, let him know that uh, there's a bunch of old guys out mm-hmm. here who remember him fondly and wish him and you and your whole family the best Thank as you. he marches through uh, each day.
1: Yeah, the silver lining is, um, you know, it's pulled our whole, when something like that happens, the rest of your family gets much closer. You know, my sisters and I are much closer post-Dad's crash than we were before, so.
0: Well, I'm sure he would be happy and proud of that, for sure, Hmm. that uh, he was able to bring you guys together in a unique way. Yep. Yep. Sometimes it takes weird stuff, doesn't it? Yeah,
1: well, thank you for saying that.
0: Um, all right, back to uh, you and riding a bike. I want to hear, like, how did you end up heading to Europe? How did you end up at, I mean, I know you didn't win the Tour de France, or <laughs> but you were freaking awesome. <laughs> oh and you ended up riding the uh, all three Grand Tours and uh, really having a great career. How did you end up getting to that level?
1: Uh mine was a very classic like talent development pipeline story you know i was growing up in colorado and i was winning races as a junior in the pro one twos and stuff and colorado is a very competitive scene and it was right as jonathan botters was leaving europe and starting this little team called 5280 subaru with three under 23s and three juniors i was 16 at the time um so i hopped on that um Got a free bike, got some clothing. They sent us to the Tour of the Gila and to national championships for juniors, and you know you kind of fall into that, and then you kind of get the invite from you know USA Cycling to go over to Europe and you know cut your teeth that way, because the only sub- the only way to learn how to race against the Europeans on those is to just throw yourself in, uh, just straight into the deep end. It was kind of a sink or swim mentality back then. It still is somewhat, but especially during. You know, my junior another under 23 years. It was just ship them all to Europe and see who can hack it and who wants to go home. Really, um, that's uh,
0: I I respect that. I remember Alexei Greywall, 1984 Olympic champion. He was like, nope, I'm out. He came mm-hmm. home. He didn't dig the European scene. So it is hard. And I was like, do you that. remember your first trip?
1: Oh yeah, I they you know they brought us to belgium you know i was this little kid from colorado i couldn't you know i was a uphill rider still you know i was a climber and they were just you know they had us in a bunch of like northern french classic style races and kermesses in belgium and i was just getting my shit kicked in um and you know and i flew over there and i'd never been abroad before like all of a sudden i land in belgium and I, no one told me what, like, about time change. You know, it's like, I'm just oh like, oh, my God, it's morning. Like, I didn't even sleep on this plane. Like, I just remember the jet lag, of all jet lags and stuff, and just being so zonked out. Um, the culture shock was deep the first trip. Um, and I do remember thinking, even racing there for a few years, I kept, you know, getting brought back, but it was like, oh, if this is, if this flat, windy racing is is what racing in europe is like like i don't i don't care like i like the tour of utah i like the redlands classic like i'm gonna you know go race in the us and you know do these races that that i enjoy more um and finally usa cycling brought my class to some hilly races in italy and spain um i think there was some hesitancy given kind of that dark era of cycling. It was like, you know, with with doping and all that, like our, you know, our kids aren't even gonna hold a candle to guys going uphill in Italy and Spain. Like there's no reason to bring them there. But, you know, I was in this class with TJ Van Garderen and myself and um, Alex Howes and, and a bunch of these pros who are just starting to age out now, but We were kind of making it. So they brought us there and we had a little bit of success and a lot of fun. I was like, oh, okay, well, this is what stage race. Like I can stage race. I like this. So that kind of gave me a bit more motivation. But I mean, even like thinking about gravel is like, I think I always enjoyed coming back and doing, you know, those tour Utahs and the Redlands. Like I always loved racing stateside.
0: So you were, I don't know, eight years or so over there on the world tour stage, um, 10, yeah, 10 years. What'd you like about it?
1: I, I was, I graduated all the way through vauder's uh, slipstream, what is now EF program. So I was their original junior rider. And every year the team kind of got bigger, signed some higher profile riders. And I was just old enough and quick enough to kind of make the cut. So they kept bringing me and bringing me, um, <sighs> And eventually I made it to the world tour team as I aged out of under 23s. So, um, you know, I was kind of their their pipeline rider. And that was really nice for some of their sponsors. You know, it was, look, we took this little kid from Colorado and we brought him up internally all the way to the world tour. Um, and they really liked that. Um, and I did four years on the world tour with them from 11 to 13, 11, 12, 13, no. Yeah, 2010 to 2013 and then, uh, I went on to, to BMC. After that,
0: what'd you like about those long tours, long stage races? Uh,
1: I was just, I, I love the climbs and and the the harder the day, the better. Those attrition based races is where I really seem to to excel. You know, it's I was never the best positioner, pack fighter, you know, jostler, but I on on the stuff where it was just relentlessly physical taxing like that's where i kind of seem to to break through so um i got to do my first grand tour the giro in 2011 um and i i think i was like 21st or something as a as a young rider um and uh it was just kind of i didn't really have a bad day i didn't crack and so all of a sudden you know that kind of became my thing as like a you know a climbing domestique for for the team leaders.
0: Did you have a favorite Grand Tour?
1: I mean, I'm really glad I did the tour twice, but, cause it's the big show, but it's so stressful. Like it's really, it's, it's not crazy fun when you're in it. It's just, it's because it's the big show is what's intoxicating about it. But the actual, the most beautiful Grand Tour is the Giro, hands down. It's just the passion. The the fans around it, the the scenery, the Italian Dolomites are the coolest mountain range on earth, I still stand by that. I've, you know, hiked through the Himalaya, the Andes, the, the Dolomites are just so dramatic and craggy and spiky and yeah. Um, the Giro's kind of, I, I think that's the coolest grand tour, um, but I was physically best in, in Spain, just hot weather, steep climbs, so
0: uh sep made spain relevant we're uh how fun was that that to watch
1: yeah i got volta fever like everyone and uh yeah sep is god he's he's so impressive and i remember racing with him or against him but you know we shared some years on you know world championships teams and a couple of vueltas in the same peloton and I remember a, a vivid thought in 2018 actually thinking, you know, Sep is, he's such this ma- such a magical climber. Like, I don't know if he'll ever get the chance or I'll ever put it together, but like, I remember vividly thinking like, he is the modern Andy Hampston. Like kind of this offbeat, soft-spoken guy just doing his own thing, his own trajectory, but just this eagle on a bike, just flies when the road goes uphill. Um, and he just proved it, you know, he really did. fun to watch
0: and super nice. Yes. Seeming super nice. Yes. Andy Hampton was super nice. I met him in the 1986, uh, course classic. We went out to watch a few days. I got laughed at by Bernardi, no, huh. and, uh, Lamont said, Oh, thanks. <laughs> when I told him congrats on the tour and Andy sat on a, uh, uh, flower bed thing at Copper Mountain and chatted with me for five awesome. minutes. Yeah, so another one of the Boulder Mafia. My...
1: Andy's a, a Boulder He's... OG, too. <laughs> yeah,
0: you're right, he is an OG for sure. So, dude, like, how did you come to leave that world and go to Unbound? I'm looking, you're you were racing in the Grand Tours in 2019. Mm-hmm. Of course, 2020 is a weird year anyway. Mm-hmm. But uh, around then, like, what we have? We had Unbound. We had Mid-South. Um, uh, gravel Worlds was a thing. It, I don't feel like gravel, even, what was that, four years ago? Yeah. Was what it was today. Oh, no, not at all. No, not it's... At all. I mean, I can't imagine now. being in Europe racing at the highest level and saying, I think I'm going to go <laughs> over and race in Kansas. Yeah. And make a living doing that.
1: Well, the, the making a living wasn't really the idea. Um, you know, growing up mountain biking, I still loved riding off road. Growing up in Colorado, all the mountain roads are dirt roads. So, you know, you'd, we'd always ridden gravel. I think my first ever road race was this thing called the boulder Bay, which was on dirt roads around the north of Boulder. Um, mm-hmm. it, and it's not a quick mind flip is what happened to me. Basically, now living in Northern California since 2011, there's this series that you might have heard of called the Grasshopper Adventure Series out here. They've been going for 25 years they weren't gravel races, they were adventure races. You took whatever bike made sense, whether it was a mountain bike or a cross bike or a road bike and you'd be on pavement, but all of a sudden you'd hop off and go through a stream crossing that you'd have to ford on your bike and up a dirt hill and, you know. So I was doing these gravel races for fun and training because they were just like happening in February and March if I was home and it made sense to hop into something a little harder than just training by yourself. and a friend locally happened to, you know, in, in 2018, he was like, Pete, like you should look at this thing called the Belgian waffle ride in San Diego. Like it's like a hopper, but times a hundred. It's nuts, you know? And, and I kind of looked into it and it sounded really fun. So as I was redoing my contract with, with Trek at the time, I was on Trek Segafredo the last four years of my world tour run. Um, you know, I I built it into the contract with my agent. We were renewing and I said like, hey, like I really wanna do these things. Like I want, you know, I wanna do some of these gravel races. I think it makes sense for you guys, like, you know, show up, it's like a Grand Fondo or whatever. Like I'll, you know, be public and enjoy, but like, you know, I'll also get personal satisfaction out of it. Um, So in my contract, I actually had written in that I could do the Belgian waffle ride Unbound and the Leadville mountain bike race, um, and so in twenty nineteen I did those while doing my full World Tour calendar, um, and it was from those experiences. You know, I I won the BWR, I was second at Unbound to Colin Strickland, and I was fourth at Leadville, I think. And the the light bulb just clicked. It was like, oh my gosh, like this this there's something here. There's a magic recipe and. I think I can do this full time and I haven't had this much fun racing my bike in ages. Um, and there's a whole other slew of things that happened before that. You know, there's my dad's accident, there's my own broken leg in 2015 where you know a lot of teams wrote me off and I might have never learned to walk again. And and you realize through these experiences, you know, you're one way and you're just chasing a result and trying to make the tour team and, and fully, invested in that monk lifestyle in Europe. And then certain things happen to you as you age and you realize who's in your corner and who's just there for convenience and what makes you happy. And I think it was a product of that also that just made me want to chase a more relatable way, a relatable way of of riding my bike as a living. I won't lie in that I was becoming a little disillusioned with the world tour. Um, it's very monotone, the life. It's very selfish. Um, and it started to grate on me a little bit. Um, I got a little sick of team politics. You know, you have good friends for a few years through a contract cycle, and then all of a sudden it's time to talk numbers. And it's just ruthless and it's, it's dishonest at times. And I think it was just a, a, a well rounded fed upness, too. And and seeing this opportunity stateside where I could be home with my wife, do races that I enjoy, be a person that races a bike instead of a bike racer that just happens to be a human, which is kind of what the World Tour has become at this point. You know, it's so streamlined and so like perfect and all the marginal gains and all that. So um, it was just wanting me wanting a, a greener uh, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and seeing the moment it was just it was honestly lucky timing too with where gravel's gone
0: well it uh, it, it was exactly as it launched into the stratosphere as yep. far as popularity and becoming the American thing. yeah was that a scary jump? Was it scary to not sign a
1: hundred percent? Oh yeah, I had no idea where this was going. It was I think this makes sense and it wasn't just a a leap of faith though. It was a calculated step. It you know, I I I was, you know, testing the waters with some contacts saying, like, I think I wanna do this, you know, would you support me if I if I went for this? Uh, some friends in the industry, you know, sportful, cliff bar, canyon and shimano and and it was kind of this unanimous yeah like let's try it that's new and different and fresh and <clears throat> so it was it was once i kind of had that that security net that i was able to kind of go okay and, and and it was a decision it kind of eventually became and i kind of i guess naturally even if i unintentionally pushed myself into this decision in that the world tour wasn't happy to accept gravel yet. It was me and the EF duo of Lockie and Alex house doing their thing. And, and I was doing it with Trek and all the other world tour teams in Europe, the traditionalists were just like, what the, what the hell? These guys are just playing around in the dirt and drinking beer. And, and so cheers, cheers. As as I do this now, I mean, I guess they were a little bit right, but, (laughs) but It, it
0: kind of yeah be- but you're smiling and laughing exactly
1: and it, it kind of just became this moment where it was like no team was willing to take me on to moonlight and gravel so I, I you know I had these feelers out saying I think gravel makes sense let's do this and any team my agent talked to was like yeah we're interested in, in Pete if he doubles down in Europe and just stays like a grand tour climber, but we don't want any of this gravel bullshit, you know? And, and so it really became a decision time for me. And as soon as I had, you know, some, that safety net of a few partners willing to, to take this leap of faith with me, it, I went with that. Um, and it's the the best mood I've ever made in my career. I can say that now.
0: So, I mean, hindsight's 2020, right? (laughs) So, did you make a living your first year or did you like scrape by and live the dirtbag lifestyle? Like where, was okay. where were you on? Like it was okay. I was
1: okay. It wasn't, you know, by any means the highest contract I ever made on the road. But you know, I also had years on the road as a Neo pro or coming back from my broken leg when I was on minimum wage, which in the world tour is pathetic. I mean, you can, make more working at McDonald's than you can as a world tour cyclist, which is still the whole business of of pro cycling is it's frustrating. And that's a whole nother podcast. Um,
0: It is. It's weird.
1: But uh, you know, I I was in the middle because I came to it with a very, uh, a business mindset. I said, Hey, no one's really racing gravel professionally yet. There's something here. I'm going to be maybe the first gravel pro. Like I'm going to, go all in on this though like i can't have a side hustle at a cafe or something like i still i have a family i have a mortgage like i need to just i got to cut even i got to pay my bills um and and there's just a responsible way to talk to a potential sponsor cuz you know a lot of the industry just is like oh yeah we'll support you like with product and you know i was able to come with a very nice way of saying yeah, but I, I need some cash to make to make this work. and And if you you know if you broach it the right way, you can cobble it together. And so <clears throat> I kind of started what <clears throat> I called a privateer program at the time, and now it's kind of funny, it's become like an industry term. but uh for sure. the idea was basically cobble together somewhere from ti- five to ten sponsors for you know there's some headliners with with more, and there's you know, lower levels that's just you know, one, two, three K, but if you, you put enough of it together, then you're talking, you know, and this is not like my example, but you just think of like a very basic, like if you get 10 sponsors in at $10,000 each, you're making a hundred K, you know, and the difference is you have to fund all your racing out of that. I'm my own business. So I have to do the travel, the registrations, the lodging, all of that comes back out of it. So it was a, uh, jump into the deep end in terms of running a small business at the same time.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Now, I got to imagine that the number of days racing has decreased huge. Like, how many days racing did you do in 2018 versus 2023?
1: The number is much lower, but it's the same in terms of, like, a logistical hurdle in, in that really? Well, I mean, I think there's like one or two gravel stage races. There's not many, there's the Oregon trail, which is five days in bend. And there's like a, a three-day stage race in, in Idaho. And that's about it. Like most of these gravel races I do are one day races. So right. So I'm basically a one day racer now, but if I do 30 race days a year, I do 30 races a year. I'm still traveling 20, 30, time, 30 weekends a year. You know, and and in road racing, you do a grand tour. That's 21 days like that. So the actual travel is the same. Like I'm racing almost constantly from late January until mid-October. The season is the same length. Uh, It's just the actual pinning the number on your back is, yeah, about a quarter of what it is normally. Stage races, you just, you get so much bang for your buck with that, (laughs) you know?
0: Yeah, right. I that makes sense. Is it easier now to put your budget together and meet that budget than it was in 2019-2020? I'm going to yeah. use 2020. I know it. Well, that was exploded, my first year, but you had to be prepared for it. Well, you went in. it was until March, so your season had begun. I did. Uh, hey. What was it? It was Mid-South mid south it all exploded yeah there
1: was a grasshopper and two grasshoppers and then mid south and then everything stopped and looking back now i mean i that pandemic was a very beneficial thing in terms of my career because it forced me to learn business like i you know i all of a sudden i you know i had sold all these sponsors on I'm gonna race all these gravel races. Like, you know, I'm pretty much a sure bet for a podium and, you know, experiencing all these these events and like, and being an ambassador for you at these events with thousands of people. And all of a sudden that's not available. And I felt guilty. I was like, how do I give these sponsors uh, an ROI, a return on their investment for believing in me and going out on this branch into the unknown when no one's ever done this before? Um, so I had to get creative real fast and luckily the rest of the bike industry was thinking on the same terms they're like you know what do we do and so you know I got I'm really privileged that I got to learn from some brilliant marketing guys over at Canyon and and all my sponsors in that you know how, how do we pivot what do we do next you know and um I hustled in the pandemic I didn't sit and play video games you know I started, you know, championing these FKTs and stuff and, and these other ways to, to compete and and bring, you know, attention for, for my partners, but also stay competitive in, in an alternate way. Um, the pandemic showed that the human race is very, uh, very creative, you know? We, we, we can come up with a lot of things, we can pivot. Um, and, I mean, I was doing, I, I went to Zwift and I started leading Zwift gravel rides, you know, under, I had the, you know, they mocked up a Canyon Grail with a double diker handlebar avatar that you could have in Zwift for these Tuesday morning rides with Pete and all this stuff. Like, I just, I said yes to everything. Um, and so, in that way, it was, I, again, was thrown into the deep end of marketing, like, just understanding and kind of how it reacts and relates. Um <clears throat> And that was that was uh, a blessing in disguise for sure.
0: Um, how many FKTs did you nail, and <laughs> what was your Everesting time? Because you had to have done an Everest.
1: <laughs> I never Everested. I just couldn't get excited on going up and down the same damn hill. I, talk, I, I talked. I talked with Shimano about it, and they started going into the efficiency of it. But I just, I was like, yeah, no. Um,
0: no, never did it.
1: Yeah, I like the idea of K2-ing more. Have you heard of K2-ing?
0: I'm guessing it's steeper and deadlier. It's,
1: <laughs> it's the elevation of K2, so slightly less than Everest. But instead of the Everest rule is you have to do the same climb. For some reason, Like that's uh-huh. the arbitrary rule that the keepers of Everesting made up. K2-ing is you're supposed to do a different hill to accumulate your 28, 29, 27,000 or whatever feet. So you can get a lot more creative and actually just make a badass route.
0: Um dude, you could just like live in Boulder and do that. Yeah. <laughs> like just head west. Yep.
1: Yeah, just go up and down and keep every riding. canyon. Yep. Yep.
0: <clears throat> you just that'd be can't awesome. repeat
1: the same road was the rule. And I Lockheed did one actually. I, I remember seeing Lockheed do a K2 and I was like, "Damn." Um Jeez,
0: but, uh, from Boulder, that'd be really cool. Yeah. Like I rode all those canyon roads Yeah, that summer of 87, mm-hmm. and that'd be really fun. You just go up to the peak to peak, yep, back down. go off, yep. drop down, go up in the next yep. one, and tack
1: Mount Evans in there to get a lot of vert at once, and
0: finish it at Mount <laughs> yeah. Evans, um, which by the way, we share uh, beyond the Leadville and Schwamigan uh, start line. I did Mount Evans in 1987, the year you were born. That's a beautiful climb. Was three weeks, three weeks before you were born. (laughs) It was in your honor. Thank you. (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) Cheers. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, FKTs.
1: Um, So my big goal was the White Rim, and I'm still really proud of that one. There's a fancy video out there if anyone wants to look up Stetna White Rim FKT that was kind of the most popular route. And it was the most competitive, you know, Pace and McKelvin had had it. Quinn Simmons took it. Keegan took it over Quinn. So there was already kind of, it was an established thing. Um, and I made that kind of my big sporting goal, knowing it was a, a fast time to beat. Um, in the meantime, I did, uh, I helped establish Rose to Toads, which is a legendary route here in Tahoe. Um, Kind of one of those all-day epics. Um, so it's about helping establish. Mr.
0: Toad's Wild Ride. Yeah.
1: So Rose to Toads is you start at Mount Rose Summit, and you ride the Tahoe Rim Trail all the way across around South Lake, and you finish down Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Um, awesome. And no one had really like gone for it full gas on on a day, you know. So it was about kind of establishing it, promoting it, sharing the how you did it and incentivizing others to do it. You know, that was kind of more the, the impetus behind this. Um, and then White Rim was my big competitive effort. Um, and uh, I, I went for it. And, you know, these are just based off Strava segments, really, I mean, it's still just kind of, you know, sportsmanship and honors your word. And, and when I uploaded, I had actually missed it by 16 seconds from Keegan. And I was devastated, and I was just sitting there, and I was like, I can't go home yet. So I, you know, I had to wait. I waited three days. I called my wife, said I'm not coming home yet. I waited three days and did it again, and I got it by a few minutes. Um, since then, Keegan returned and took it by 16 seconds from me, or six seconds from Seriously. Me. So it's, you know, it's a five-and-a-half-hour time trial that comes down to a game of seconds, and you're talking about GPS error and all this crap. So, uh I don't know if I'm ever gonna go back though. It's, you know, the point is to kind of put your name on, stamp your name on that paper, and and there's other cool ones. And I currently still have a, the Coca Pelle Trail, which is 140 miles cool. from Moab to Fruita, Colorado.
0: Nice. Yeah. Um, well, quit telling people about it. Don't tell people you have. I the want FKT, everyone then to, go. They want to go. I get want
1: it. records are meant to be broken, and I want other people to push themselves for their own big day out there or, or even try and take it. That's, that's the point of this thing. Uh,
0: so you made it work in 2020. Were your sponsors happy? Were they like end of the year? It's yeah. like, dude, like in spite of Earth being shut down, you did us good.
1: Yeah. Uh, I didn't lose a sponsor in 2020. Wow. Well, actually I did. I had a coffee company and their marketing girl just didn't even understand bikes. So uh, that went away, but everyone else stuck around or actually upped for more um they were like they huh. believed in me and they're like pete's gonna hustle he's gonna represent us um and i was still kind of you know a you know like the main talking point guy in in gravel racing so you know it was. we went into 2021 and racing came back online and i had an extremely successful 2021 uh one more than I lost, which is rare in this sport, where you almost always lose, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was just helping a stab, even more than just, like, you know, it wasn't about ever selfish racing, you know, if I, if I wanted to just race my bike, and go get, like, a result on a number sheet, I should have just stayed in Europe on the road, but um, it was about helping foster, and is about helping create this this discipline, this new discipline and establishing it and legitimizing it. Um, and I'm I'm really proud of where Gravel is right now. It's definitely changed over the last few years. I mean it's it it's almost gone a little bit of me is sad that it's actually almost gone back to just about a numbers cheat in a in a lot of races, but there's also a lot out there that is the the core community and the reason why Gravel's successful is still out there, even if uh, a lot of the media just talks about results placings. I think that's just cyclical and cycling, you know, as a matter of time, something's lucrative. Yeah, people are just sure. going to come in.
0: Well, I mean, you kind of made it lucrative. <laughs> like I, uh, all those guys uh, are watching. Yeah.
1: I know. I, I
0: Everybody's watching and now everybody has a freaking van and there's <laughs> sponsors on the side of it and their hashtag van life going from race to race. I can
1: totally be and, and making
0: a living, which is cool. I
1: can totally be public enemy number one. And I, I struggle with that internally because I came to gravel for a more relatable career and closing off that red tape from those, you know, in the, the world tour, you're on these team buses and you get out and you race and you get back on the bus and you go to the hotel and... it's it's not about the masses and gravel was totally different. And so I, a little bit of me is, feels guilty that it's gotten more performance oriented, but at the same time, I, you know, I was talking with Ted King about this. If it's not me and him, it was going to be someone else. Like, it's just, this is the way the world's moving. And, And I just have to remember that as things morph and change, like I have to remember for my own internal happiness, why I came here. And I'm still competitive. I love racing. I want to win bike races because that's what I love doing. But it can't be at all costs anymore. And that's kind of where I draw my line. So, um, you know, it's about me following my own personal journey within it. And I can't blame anyone else for doing it their way. Um, And there's enough space to... The story still counts for something in gravel. A lot more than road, I would still argue. so. if you do it your way and you can relate on something, then you're going to be just fine in this sport. And for me, that's, you know, there isn't any shared or sorry, there's, there's no more secrets. You know, I, I, you know, I've always made a point of sharing tips and tricks and, and things to ideally help the masses, whether it's fueling or tire suggestions and all of that, because it's a mass participation sport.
0: It is. And I, I feel like that's what makes it successful and different. Mm-hmm. You know, going from crits, Cat 4, Cat 3, Cat 2, Cat 1, Pro, all racing 45 minutes at their own time. Uh, cyclocross is like that. Mountain biking can be like that with the different categories, racing different lengths at different times. But I've always looked at Schwam I'm going to use Schwam again. Yep. Or Leadville. Mass start events, uh, theoretically, you and I could line up at Leadville and I could kick your ass. Yeah. We're in the same race. Same time, same course. I raced with Dave Weens, Lance Armstrong. um, Awesome. And uh, you have that shared
1: experience. Like, Regardless of your times, you went through the same things on the same day and you can relate to that after the race together, you know, and ideally, yeah. you know, the journey person writer can better appreciate the pro effort. They're like, Oh my gosh, that guy did that in six hours when it took me eight or whatever. Like that's insane. And post race at a beer, you know, you go through the same things, whether it's mishaps or, you know, good luck or whatever. So, um, it's, it's a great, it's a great formula. Um,
0: yeah, I, I think that's the success of gravel. I always said after Schwam again, like road racing needs this kind of format. Yeah. We, well, I can't tell you, know, you all need to start.
1: How many times I've had this conversation with teammates like the tour de front, these pro road racing, pro tour road, it's intoxicating. It's so when you're in that final sprint going, you know, 40 miles an hour and you're bumping bars and one guy's mistake is going to send you all down and it's scary and riveting. Like you can't, you can't show that you can't show that to everyone. And it's, it's never been captured. And like the Netflix thing kind of started to get there and like help tell people at least, but it's like, I wish there was a way to like really help people understand what it's like in there. Because then I think site road cycling would become way more popular. The danger factor, the it's, all of it, right? The intensity. Um and it it, it just hasn't. There's no way to, to share that that experience of a sprinting on stage one of the tour with everyone's nerves on on an edge, you know?
0: You you cannot replicate that. No. For the masses.
1: No. And it, it's a shame. I mean
0: you can replicate you can replicate riding on the same roads. We can all ride the Perry Roubaix route, but it's it's very like, road racing, when you're dropped, you're off. Right. Like, end of your day, see ya. Um, right. The race goes up the road. But gravel, it's like, I don't care what you're doing up front. I'm getting through this bit myself. There's, I'm climbing these hills into the wind. It's
1: still an adventure, no matter where you are. Yep. You know, that's that's what's really fun about it, for sure.
0: Yep. So how do you feel about the evolution of, of gravel? <clears throat> I I used to sign up for gravel. Actually, I'll go back far enough to say that we hated gravel and would avoid it like the plague. But then we signed up for the freaking Trans-Iowa. We sent a postcard to Guitar Ted and begged to let us in. And it was free, and you got a cue card at the start line, and you found your way through the state to now the Gravel National Championships, the Gravel World Championships, which is Almost a whole nother thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lifetime Grand Prix is such a huge yeah. piece of American cycling right now. Yeah. What's your vision of where gravel has come from and where it is today?
1: Oh, that's it's such a loaded question. I mean sorry. It's, <laughs> yeah, I, I I've struggled with it to be brutally honest. You know, it's I've I've seen it morph and change. And as I we almost you know said a few minutes ago, like I feel a little bit guilty when I am down on it sometimes. You know, um, the I had a, a Velo news piece I put out there, you know, another one of my my side projects making it making it work. And and as I said, the profication of gravel is complete. And and I do see blame myself, blame the lifetime Grand Prix, blame the industry for telling racers to just focus on racing the bike and they'll take care of the rest. Blame the riders who wanted the world tour contract, but never got it. And now they have a a platform to not worry about a team manager or getting the right contact and showcasing their talent. But whatever it is, like, I see that gap widening now. Like that, that, that shared experience it's within the race, it's it's a very different formula. I mean it's it's the the racing in the front has become so streamlined and, and high performance and high octane that I have consciously gotten pulled into my old pro ways and then had to mentally wrench myself back out and then pulled in and wrenched out. And and for me it's a balancing act and the the, the way I found in terminal internal harmony was creating a, a calendar that balances both because as i said i still love racing like i i want to race i love i'm still competitive i'm you know i'm mid 30s i'm still in my prime for another season or two <laughs> you know i'm 36 now so i want i want to keep racing and i don't want to waste that right now so I, I need to balance my calendar with with the elite races, the Grand Prixs, the national championships, uh, all these things. Not the UCI Worlds because I am very against it politically still. But um, really, oh yeah, I did not apply to go. Um, but I, I I need to do these these A list races where the result matters because that's where pop culture and the industry is gone. But then there's all these other races where it's still just the experience and that communal gathering is the most powerful and important part. And the race is almost secondary. And I feel like if I can balance the calendar, I can kind of, I know it sounds hippie, but I can fill my cup with good vibes at, at those races. And then I can show up knowing that I don't have to feel like I need to fit everything in and, you know, at certain races just be like, all right, it's business time. Like, you want to play the racing game? I can play the racing game. I know how to do this. And so I'm trying to do that balance throughout the season.
0: I 100% understand. Schwamigan for us is a weekend event. Mm-hmm. The race is there. We do the race. We enjoy the race. We love the whole scene. We love trying to get up Fire Tower. <laughs> and... uh it's but it's a whole weekend like we love friday saturday sunday in the north woods our friends beers the food the lakes the whole scene yes. and i'm sure for you it's a very different experience it's like you get there you get to the freaking starting line at 1 gun goes off for 2 hours pedal to the metal and uh finish line yeah so i'm sure it's a very different experience but i can relate to the the need to go to a low key gravel event where you can go out and who cares what place you get. It's not about. I'm sure you're still. All of us pin a number on and it's like, I want to do as well as I can do, right? But. Uh, and that's the thing. As long as. You're, but that's not the most important part of that weekend for you. No. The weekend is the most important. Exactly.
1: Part. For me, it, it is and it always will be. Um, I just need to. Be okay with the fact that knowing that you know maybe socializing a little harder than I should is gonna be a slight detriment to my performance. And if I'm okay with that. And if I'm not okay with that, I need to maybe be a little bit more selfish at times. Um so on, again was actually more of a relaxed environment for me. I, I see what you guys are doing really? up there, and I I really I am bummed about the separate start. That's, that's frustrating because I want to, I see the start downtown and that's amazing instead of, we just start by ourselves hours later and sprint up a grass Hill. And I mean, and that's where you right. and I met is, and, and that's where you're seeing this division right now is you, you see a few of us, you know, elite riders, you, we met the day before hanging out at the expo. Um, and you know, I was hanging out at servant, was it the day before that we met or the day after it was the it day was, before. Yeah. yeah and you know serving pie at orange seal and just enjoying it you know and had a beer the night before the race but just one with big tall wayne my mechanic and we had this great little airbnb on a lake up there and we really just absorbed it um and there's other pros where you don't even see them the whole weekend you know like they just they want to show up they want to race they want to go home and that's fine though because I, who am I to say that that's the wrong way of doing it? It's just not the right way for me at this point in my life. Um,
0: yeah. Well, I'm sure there's races where you are all hundred percent.
1: Yep. And gravel nationals was one of those, you know, there wasn't much going on in Garing to be honest. Uh, I got my number. There wasn't much of an expo because it was kind of thrown together pretty quick by USA Cycling, to be honest. You know, it was a kind of a late thing. Um, and so, you know, I kind of walked around the expo for a minute with Wayne and it was like the only poll here is the lure of a national championship. I mean, that's right now it's USA Cycling's brand. And I know they're trying to change that, but like everyone here is just riding for the, the stars and stripes in their category. Otherwise, why would you come to this event? There isn't a party, there isn't an expo yet. And so that was one where I was like, all right, Wayne, I'm gonna do a recon ride and we're gonna go back to the hotel and you work on the bike and I'm gonna stretch and, put my legs up, you know,
0: is there a future for that race?
1: I think so. I think it was really successful this year. It got a lot of media, a lot of pros attended it. Um, I think it had, they tried to pull it off a few years ago. it was, it was boycotted a few years ago, you know, it just never could get the footing. Um, but that's just this changing landscape. And as I said, the profication of gravel is now you can make a living, not doing the same hustle that myself and Ted and Payson do. You can just be a bike racer. um, Cut and dry, which is, it's fine. You know, that's, um, that's just the evolution of something.
0: How important is a lifetime Grand Prix in that evolution?
1: Um, I think you can, just like me, I think we, we share, we share a trajectory in that you can also, uh you can blame us or you can congratulate us on the change. <laughs> you know, like depending on what side of Fair what enough. side of the hill you're on. Right. Um, you know, the Grand Prix wants to create more fandom, have a high-profile race series in America again, which is awesome and I agree with all of that. At the same time, the money, the prestige has forced racers to only worry about their results and less about all the other things at these races because it's all riding on results at these races for us um so it's it's a balancing act with those guys i mean i know like lifetime they make their money off mass start events schwamigan leadville unbound like it's about the 99 percent of them for their bottom line but they also have this like elite thing which is yeah that's it just comes down to your personal view on the whole thing, I think.
0: Well, doesn't the that elite thing make the 99% want to be a part of that race?
1: I don't know. Even
0: though we're not going to beat you. Like going to the New York Marathon or Chicago Marathon or London Marathon where the best runners in the world are going to compete and we're we start a mile behind them in the... <laughs> 35,000 strong. But we're still in that race knowing that the fastest people in the world are up front. Well, I
1: hope so because that's how I make my living right now. <laughs> so to be brutally honest, I hope that that motivates you because I do think that's still the best way to validate a product. You know, I think you know, gravel especially, you know, it's so rough on your equipment. It's the fueling is hard with these survival courses and rationing your nutrition throughout a long day and your tires and sealant and all of it right like i think if i can help validate a product so you can have better success on your event that we're lining up at together i job done and then my sponsors are happy you know so i do think that magic recipe for me is doing well enough you know so internally i want to win the bike races like I like doing that, I'm competitive. Logically, represent, if I can win a few, great, always be a part of the conversation, show that the product you are using is good, it's fast, it's proficient, and then beyond that, I do think being friendly and public and creating a good experience for a potential consumer for a brand is more valuable. You know, and that's, yeah. that's the marketing well stuff said. that I learned in all through the pandemic.
0: <laughs> in your privateer yeah. MBA.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> I, I appreciate that. You'll take that far. <laughs> okay. Let's do some business. Pay dirt. Hmm. Tell me about paydirt.
1: Uh, pay dirt is my own gravel race that I organize. Um, it's in Carson city, Nevada. Uh, During my time with Trek, uh, to give back to the community, to raise funds for life-altering injuries such as my dad's brain injury, my broken leg, I created a road Fondo out of Tahoe where I reside part-time. The riding is phenomenal here, world-class. As I transitioned to gravel, I started dropping down into the Nevada basin and exploring more and deeper. And it's, it's wild and rugged and remote and, uh, I linked up with a buddy and and we created Stetna's Pater. It's a gravel race, but, um, there's no sanctioning, there's no rules in gravel. So we could just do what we wanted. And I decided to make things different. I wanted it to just be a version of the best day on a bike I could think of, you know? And so it's not just a race. Um, it's, you know how do you really get the most enjoyment out of a good day on the bike you know it's that shared experience it's good post race food and beers it's the it's it's all the parts right and so we have a really nice route it's not a crazy 200 mile route it's not too short you know it's just right in that middle zone uh it's going to challenge you but it's not the hardest thing um and then i <clears throat> i started twisting with it you know i i decided to uh in road racing you always have time bonus sprints right on top of a mountain or bonus sprints in in the tour and so i said instead of bonus sprints like you know we're going to kind of lean into the nevada thing you know the the mining the cowboy stuff um so we have these games back at the finish expo uh, we have a mechanical bowl we have a tire toss like a lasso game <clears throat> with irc tires and however many seconds you stay on the bowl, that's your bonus second. So if you come out to my race, Dave, and you and your buddy come out and you cross the line together, you can ride the bowl to see actually who sits higher in the results sheet. You can knock time off. Um, tire toss is the same. 20 seconds for the furthest one, 10 and five seconds for the closest one. Um, custom beer that I partnered with a brewery because as we talked about, I'm a bit beer geek. Uh, so I've got my own beer for the event. Um, and then within the ride itself, we went with time segments um, because that's how we ride. Oh, Siri just turned on for me. I don't know what I said. Um, that's how we ride. Like you rip a, a, a trail or a climb or something, and then you kind of stop and you regroup and you set off together. So we kind of made that into the event. We It's like an enduro for mountain biking, but, you know, we have uphill and downhill, flat technical like it's not just climbing it's not just downhill like mountain bike enduro um so like you you ride over the timing mat it takes a lot more timing logistics but my partner is great with that i partner with a company that does events um and you're on the clock but when you cross that timing mat after the segment you're off you can wait an hour or you can go immediately it doesn't matter so you know we have a massive picnic in the middle of the course with hot dogs and all of that stuff um and so you just do you and for those that are competing you know you can that's a whole another tactic that's interesting because we do champion the women's race the women in in, to you know put a stamp on you know on parity and equality in sport like we really highlight the women's race and give them a proper prize purse and got some of the best ladies out there this year it was a wild battle that actually came down to the bonus tire toss it was insane no yeah. way yeah second place leapfrog wow. first place with a 22nd a wow. ringer it was nuts uh after all the time segments were accumulated heather jackson was t- 16 seconds behind sarah sturm and heather threw a 22nd ringer uh on the tire toss and sarah didn't and There was a little bit of drama because Sarah was like, wait, you mean I was the fastest (laughs) rider, but I didn't win? You know, so, but those are are the house rules. Uh, It was a wild time. Um, And and so the whole...
0: Mr. Toad's wild ride.
1: (laughs) And the whole tactic around that, right? Like if you finish, do you want to leave early after a time segment and kind of have a clean run at trail? Or... You want to leave in a group and benefit off drafting and stuff so there's a whole another tactic that if you are going to really race you can start implementing so um we're having a lot of fun with it and it's uh next may 18th
0: i love your creativity thank i love the uniqueness
1: i mean it's a mass rollout like neutral rollout to the first time segment so it is a mass start event um and then once we hit the first time segment it just blows to smithereens after like 10 miles or something Um, and we do have course cutoff times to make sure that you can finish safely. Um, but the, the overall scoring is basically just cumulative, all three time segments lumped together. So, you know, I think Sarah, you know, with the fastest female split, she rode, I think the whole ride took her four hours, but her time in like the results was like two and a half or something like that.
0: That's pretty cool. I love that idea. And you're right. That does make it a um, kind of a timing challenge. But if you've got somebody who's good at that, that's a great way to do a race. And enjoy the race and enjoy the day. My wife and I just did Gravel Worlds, the Mm. 78 mile.
1: Good people out there. Um,
0: I'm getting full credit. Jason, Great people out there. Yeah, for sure. But it was, I mean, you're on. My wife's like, oh, that was so pretty. Like, I really loved the countryside. And I'm like, what countryside? (laughs) Like, I never looked around once. Hmm. Because it was, I was driving the whole time. It was muddy and soft and, like, you really had to Hmm. pick your line. And I didn't want to kill her. So I I was driving the whole time. I really didn't look around at all. But this way you can just soft pedal relax enjoy each other's company in between segments that's pretty cool yeah
1: yeah or you can i mean yeah i like that do you have this pipe dream if with more sponsorship we actually just have sponsors start owning segments so if you just want to rip one segment maybe you can win a wahoo gps computer or something like that you know but um at the same time too it's like the pros will probably win all the segments and the overall. So we actually do some individual prizes just for like the best bowl ride and stuff. (laughs) That's awesome. Well-rounded athlete. Uh, So who (laughs) takes,
0: yeah, right, right. That would be very, and uh, with the tire toss, like well-rounded athlete with skills.
1: Exactly. Hand-eye coordination, which none of us bike racers
0: have. (laughs) Correct. That's why we're not in ball sports. Exactly. Uh, Who's taking care of you? taking care of me my wife brag about your sponsors oh my 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 wife brag about your (laughs) wife and your children Uh, for sure
1: um i must apologize to my wife because she thought i was coming back for a half retired sport in gravel and now i'm traveling just as much but for me i'm like oh what do you mean i'm stateside i'm home i'm not in europe so um she's putting up with it and she sees how much fun i'm having so thanks to her Uh, my biggest caretaker is Big Tall Wayne, my mechanic. He is one of my best friends. My beer drinking buddy in Tahoe happens to be one of the best mechanics I've ever met. Uh, So as I went down this path, I said, you want to do this with me? And he said, hell yeah. So I do, in a bougie looking way, travel with my own personal mechanic, but it's really just, I want to go to all this rad stuff with one of my best buddies. and he happens to really like wrenching on bikes and I happen to like racing really fast clean bikes. <laughs> so we, we just, you know, we, it's a good combination. we just do this thing together. Um, and you know, I've made sure to his dream is to be a pro mechanic. He, that's his dream career. Like mine is pro racing. So we just kind of have this natural fit together and I've been able to go to my sponsors and be like, you know, I, I got to pay Wayne too. Like you got to kick in for this. Like we are a team. So, um it's me and wayne um and the the folks that really believe in that is canyon cliff bar the feed shimano orange seal sportful clothing um irc tires i know i'm forgetting someone and i feel so bad about it but you know it's i got about (laughs) athletic brewing is fun storyteller overland my big fancy van it's so amazing actually that gravel is in this space right now where non-endemic sponsors such as breweries and vans are like, we see advertising value in this. Like that's like mountain biking with Subaru in the nineties. You know, like we're, we're at that moment right now. So I really like chasing those, those golden eggs of the non-endemic sponsor. I think that's really fun. It's like a stamp of like real success. Gotta get you like United Airlines or something. If anyone listening has a contact. (laughs) That would be sweet.
0: Um, what is it? The, the rad is this weekend. It is. Followed by Big Sugar in the Lifetime Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. You moving up any spots here in the next two races?
1: I mean, I hope so. I, I did give a good effort this year. I had some some stuff go wrong at Leadville that I don't want to get into, but normally that's one of my good scoring races. So um, that was a bummer, meaning I, uh, I've i dropped in the, the races, so I really need to bring it in the next two races. Luckily those are uh, gravel races, which is my specialty. No more of these flat bar wide tire things. So um, yeah, I, I'm really excited for both of the Rad and Big Sugar, and as I talked about that, that homeostasis and that harmony, right in between those two, I am doing a, a race called the Rexy, which is 200 miles from Moab to Fruita, Colorado. Basically parallels the Cocoa Pelle Trail, but on gravel. Um, total low-key event. I think there's 300 people signed up, maximum. Um, you can do it as a team and stuff. So um, I'm going to do a big old 200-mile gravel grind in the middle that I'm actually really excited for. So.
0: Huh. Sounds super cool. It's a beautiful area. Mm-hmm. Beautiful area. Shoot, man. Good luck. Uh, people can follow you on the gram. What else you got? Website the
1: gram um the strava i try hard on the strava i like that one um spike racers looking at bike racers or bike riders looking at bike riders so
0: um
1: yeah if you want to kind of see the places i ride and what i get into that one's a fun one as well
0: dig it and uh head on out to Carson City Nevada May 18th for the pay dirt
1: i hope you can make it
0: all right man listen i truly appreciate your time likewise And I wish you the best of luck as the season winds down. Thanks for the chat. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Peter Stetna. I really appreciate him carving out the time to chat with me. Still in the middle of a freaking huge schedule. Honestly, these guys, all of them. I remember talking to Lance Haydad at uh, Schwamigan, and I'm like, oh, gotta be winding down, only two more lifetime races, and he's like, yeah, and there's cross, and there's this, and there's that, and there's this, and there's that, and all these guys do so, so much. And, again, I completely appreciate Peter taking the time out of his day to chat with us on Bike Talk with Dave. What an awesome dude. I love talking to him and catching up about his dad and his uncle, and those guys literally laid the foundation for what we have today in cycling and i appreciate their time on a bike and his efforts on the bike as well wish him all the best as this season winds down and and he enjoys a little time at home with his wife and kids well i want to thank you for tuning in to bike talk with dave as well i would love it if you would help the show out by rating reviewing and subscribing and honestly if you really love it throw a few cents into the cup look for bike talk with dave at buymeacoffee.com if you do i will send you a bike talk with dave sticker how awesome is that don't forget bike talk with dave is available on youtube if you take your podcasts that way that's awesome And every episode is available for streaming on your home computer, work computer, wherever you want at biketalk.bike. Thanks tons again for tuning in. And remember that nothing compares to the simple pleasure of riding a bicycle.